she's from Louisiana, and she made um, a whole bunch of gumbo. So my son and I survived on gumbo. And so um, we were sitting there eating it the first night, and my, my son tells my uh, mother-in-law, uh, she calls her grandma, grandma, this is tasty. So we get back, and I said, well, that was sweet, buddy. That's a great, great way to tell uh, Grandma thanks for what she's doing. Um, and the second night, I said, what you, what you want for dinner tonight? I want some gumbo. All right, two nights in a row, that's okay. So uh, what, what you want the third night? Gumbo. <laughs> I see a trend here. Guess what he had the fourth night? Gumbo. That's exactly right. And so, um, Man, watching uh, watching my boy sit there and eat that stuff, I was like, man, you know, there's something good sometimes about leftovers. And so I, I see IBC here tonight. So you guys just, when I preach, act like I'm preaching good stuff. And maybe it'll taste like gumbo. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you, God, for this wonderful group of people that have gathered together, Lord, to praise your name. Lord, to give you honor and glory, to come to uh, this place to be fed, Lord, by the things of the Spirit, God, through the preached word. Lord, I pray that every soul here would have a heart to hear what the Bible is saying and what you're saying, not only through your word, God, but by the Spirit. Lord, open our hearts to understand, God, what you would speak to us. Open our hearts, tenderize us, God, because when that word comes, Lord, it has to find root and good ground. Tenderize us, help our hearts to be receptive to what you would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, in Jesus' name we pray. You may be seated. <laughs> well, I am in a quandary. I've not been this way too many times, thank you Jesus, but I'm in a quandary and I'm just going to turn a different direction tonight. Uh, so if this comes out a little uh, disjointed, just bear with me. You'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to preach tonight on this Jesus. This Jesus. Well, where are you at? Wow, it's tough, isn't it, sometimes? <laughs> this Jesus, all right? I want to preach tonight. If I give this a subtitle, I'd give it the, the unpreached verses of Acts chapter 2. All right, so obviously just act like it's gumbo or something, all right? Acts chapter 2. All right, I'm going to start reading because we know this is like our bread and butter. How can you say there's some, some verses in Acts chapter 2, Brother Kilman, that we've never heard before? Well, I... I'm suspicious, uh, except for the, some people in my Godhead class, uh, that there might be some people here tonight that haven't heard this. So I'm going to read, and you tell me uh, when it starts to sound unfamiliar. All right? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Hmm, sounds pretty familiar. And they appear, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, it sounds pretty familiar. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men about of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded 
uh, because every man heard them speak in his own language, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one another, Behold, are not these which speak Galileans? How hear we every man in our own tongue, wherewith we were born, Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, and dwellers in Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and all the parts of Libya, and Cyrene, and uh, strangers of Rome, and Jews, and proselytes, and Cretes, and Arabians, and we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, and, and were all in doubt, saying to one another, What meaneth this? And Others mocking said, no, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said, You men of Judea and all you that dwell in Jerusalem, be thou this known unto you and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Oh, I wish I could preach this is that, but that's not what I'm going to preach because we've heard it before. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and upon my handmaidens I will pour out in the, those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, and blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did I just enter into something that sounded a little unfamiliar? Blood and fire and moon moon looking like what? Blood? The moon turning to blood? Now, now that sounds a little unfamiliar, but if you're an eschatology buff, you might understand. If you dig the book of Revelation or Daniel or Isaiah or Thessalonians or parts of Corinthians, you might say, no, no, I, that, even that sounds familiar, Brother Kilman. I, I, maybe I've read Tim LaHaye's books, and I, I know what that looks like. Maybe that's, you know, the only time you look at Revelation. Uh, but maybe not. Maybe you actually read the book of Revelation and get good theology. Uh, uh, instead uh, of a book, and uh, maybe that sounds familiar, but let's look at some other things. This is where I want to preach. You men of Judea, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. How is he approved of God? He's approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. And you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands you have crucified him whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding of it for David speaketh concerning him I foresaw the Lord always before me before my face for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, he says, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us this day. 
What's he saying? Who is this, who is this person, this holy one, that will not see cor- corruption? Who is this holy one that will not see uh, death, that will uh, destroy his body, that gives me hope, and even his countenance shining on me gives me uh, all sorts of things that I can't get any other way? Who is David talking about? And, and Peter says, well, you know that David is not the one being addressed here. I know he's the greatest king of Israel, but this can't be about David Because he's down there in his grave. So who is this? Well, let me tell you, he says, I will tell you who this is. Thou hast made me known the ways of life, and thou hast made me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, David's right down there in his grave to this day. Therefore, he says, David, being a prophet, and knowing that God hath sworn an oath to him, that if the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh... He would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. I want to tell you tonight that God the Son could not sit on the throne. The Bible says the heaven of heavens are the Lord, but the earth has it committed into the hands of the children of men. God told Adam and Eve, I'm going to give you absolute dominion in the garden. I'm going to let you have control. Now, I'm God, but I'm going to step back and let you run your own life. I'm going to step back and let you roll the show because here's the quandary that God faced in eternity past. He wanted love. He desired love. God is a creator. Before he even framed the world, said, in order to make love, I have to take a risk. I have to give humans free will. Because if I, if I make them serve me, they will be nothing more than the rest of creation. The Bible says the creation praises the Lord. How does creation praise the Lord? By doing what it was created to do. It gives glory to God. But how does God get love? He gets no love from a tree that just does what it was designed to do. The only way. He could have love as to have someone and say, this is what I want you to do. Now I'm going to give you the choice whether to do it or not. Do you love me? Do you want to serve me? Do you want to walk with me in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve? Will you meet with me and commune with me? Will you walk with me and choose not because I twist your arm, but because I invite you and I woo you to me and I call you to me? Will you serve me of free will? And in that moment, God has created the possibility of love. I brought my wife in here, and I said, Honey, tell them how much you love love me. And I put a 45 to her head. I don't know if Sister Kilman loves Brother Kilman or not. Because it's coerced. Now, here's the thing. Back way before the world was, the Bible says, In the beginning, God, and that's all we have. God said, let there be in the splendor and majesty of the created world spills into existence so much that the Psalms cry out at the glory of God. The heavens declare his handiwork. And you read the Psalms and they, they look at God's creation and they stand out at the something like the Grand Canyon or they look up at the stars of the heaven and the splendor of his majesty that debunks every idea 
of some type of Darwinian evolution. The intrinsic complexities of our existence are so staggering that it is all people to say we can no longer defend Darwinian evolution. And it causes poets to pick up pens and begin to write about the glory of creation. But what about before all of that? In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was. There was the word of God. But before he started, one molecule spinning into existence, God had a quandary. He desired relationship, Brother Phil. He desired to have someone that would serve him, the free will. I want to create humanity because then they could choose to serve me, and I can have someone that, sh- that, that does what I want them to do, not because I force them, but because they choose to operate in relationship with me. They choose to let their lives glorify me. I'm not going to force them to date someone that they shouldn't. I'm not going to force them to uh, act in ways that they must. Dress in ways, talk in ways, have, have character and integrity. Guess what? You can mess all of that up because God gave you dominion over all your life. And you can wreck yourself if you want to, but he's not going to coerce you because he's a gentleman. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man open, I will come in and we'll have fellowship. I'll sup with you. And I, but so there God is. He says, that's what I desire. That's what I want. I want that type of relationship where I can look at the enemy and say, no, no, no. I did not force them to serve me. And they did not grow up in a greenhouse somewhere. I put them in the raw elements of temptation in the world. And they chose to serve me. They chose to love me. But here's God's quandary. God's holy. His character is indivisible. He cannot divide his nature. I was, Brother Romine was preaching. I was talking to my, my uh, uh, brother Kyle. Come here, bud. Good to see you, sir. I was talking with my brother-in-law, and we were uh, discussing. I said, I have this sermon I want to preach. I said, I don't know where I can preach it. I think the only place I can get away with it is young adults. Because it's strictly the Godhead, and it's it's unillustrated, and it's just the raw, it's just the raw word of God, the truth of God. I don't know anybody else that will tolerate me preaching it, because they have to put up with me. And then Brother Romine gets up on Sunday night at Calvary Tabernacle and begins to preach about the Godhead. And I watch these old gray-haired saints that love the truth, that understand the revelation of the mighty God in Christ, begin to praise God. And I watch a, a younger generation stoked by the fires of truth themselves saying, Yes, he's God. Gave courage to a preacher to walk into this pulpit tonight and say, Okay, if I had to get Brother Romine first... He paved the way. No, I can preach. (laughs) But God had a quandary. He's holy. How can God cease to be who he is? God never dismisses sin, ever. And when he saw free will, he saw the fall. He saw that humanity would, when he gave them choice, would ultimately fall. And God, in his foreknowledge, says, I I, I have to make something possible. I can never divide my nature. And I'm going to tell you tonight, God never, never, ever dismisses the penalty of sin. Ever. He never dismisses sin. The good thing is that God inflicts the penalty of... 
He inflicts the penalty of sin on someone else. So God in eternity says, if I create them, I, I'm holy. And I, but not only am I holy, I'm love. God is love. And, and the soul that sinned shall, shall surely die. And if I, if I create them, how can I create them? If they will go to hell, I can't. I can't create them just to see them fail and then go to hell because God is love. But God is holy. So what can he do? God has a quandary before creation is ever even instituted. God is it's torn. God has something working inside of him. But the Bible says about Christ, by him he framed the worlds. What does that mean? It means by the man Jesus, God created the literally in the Greek the ages. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start the timeline, but the lamb is going to be slain from the foundation of the world. And, and if, if they can't make it themselves, I'm going to step into a body and I'm going to come down and I'm going to pay the price and I'll take their punishment when no one else can do it. I'll do it. The Bible says he saw four times in Scripture. I wish I had time to go through every one of them. But Revelation, he says, I saw it above the earth and on the earth and below the earth. And behold, there was no one that was worthy. And John said, I wept because no one was worthy to open the book. And the angel tells me, no, 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 don't weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book. The lion of the tribe of Judah, you turn around and, and what do you see when you see this lion? You're expecting something magnificent, something glorious, something powerful. And the Bible says, behold, a lamb stood as having been slain. How is he the lion? He's the lion because he's the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. As God, he had intention, but as the son, he acted out the plan from eternity past. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the plan, the blueprint from God. Eternity past says, I'm going to put the plan in my mind. I'm gonna, I see the plan. I see how I can create. And I'm going to allow creation to occur. That's what he did as God. John 1 and 1. But John 1 14 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Because the plan had to take flesh. The plan had to be enacted. And God says, When I cannot find another, my own arm will bring salvation unto me. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. How is a man, not as God, not as deity? He came to fight as the son of man. Not God the son. God the son had no blood. Can't be deity. It can't be about God the son. God the son can't be the seed of David. Every time you hear son in the scripture, it's pointing to the man that God became. It's not pointing ever to God the Son because the, the Son is limited in knowledge. I don't know this. Only my Father knows this. That means Jesus as a man was limited. That can't work, folks, in a co-equal, co-eternal trinity. It has to be about the limitations of the man that God became. He learned obedience in the days of his flesh by the things he suffered. He came to be the Son. He came to act out the greatest battle in the world. As the son. How did he come? Well, what did he come to do? 
Peter says, well, here he comes. David being a prophet. We know that it can't be him that he's speaking of. Because he's saying, God swore with an oath to him that the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. How is he the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Because he's the seed of David. Listen, I know this is just Godhead. But I'm going to tell you, we're going somewhere. Because you can't get to Acts 2.38 until you get to Acts 2.22 and all the rest of it. There's a reason that Acts 2.38 is so powerful. But if we're not careful as oneness apostolics, we'll miss the importance because we just preach Acts 2.38 and we never preach Acts 22. Truth can be lost in a generation. Well, why is it such a big deal? Maybe we can baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in Jesus' name. Well, what's the big deal? It's just a line. It's a way to mark us against other people. Maybe we should be more tolerant. We'll get there. (laughs) Let it grow on you. God spoke and said, He, seeing this, speaking of David, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus, this Jesus, the man, this Jesus, the priest, this Jesus, the sacrifice, this Jesus, the man who prayed in the garden, Lord, not my fleshly will be done. Why would one person in the Trinity have to pray to another? Can that be co-equal? No, 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 no. It was about the man, Jesus, going and sweating. As it were, great drops of blood in agony saying, I know the plan needs to take place. I know I am the plan, but I'm a human being just like you. And God steps into that place and suffers in the garden, wrestling with his own human will, submitting it to the divine plan. Father, glorify thou me with the glory that that I had with you before the world was. Who was he praying as? Not God the Son, but the Son of God that come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus has God raised up. Wherefore, we are all witnesses. Therefore, being at the right hand of God exalted. <laughs> oh, there you go. You got the Trinity. Right there, it's the right hand of God. Oh, come on now, Brother Bobby. I mean, that's, that's at the right hand of God. You know, oh no, let me put you as God. I'm at the right hand because you're the one sitting on the phone, throne in Revelation 4. There's only one on the throne, but yes, there's this lamb that comes up. Now, is that a literal picture of God the Son? Can it be? I don't know any Trinitarian that would say this is a literal picture of God the Son. They'd say, oh yeah, that's God the Father right there. Is the picture of God the Son you're going to see? Someone called a lion that's a slain lamb standing with seven eyes and seven horns? No, it's not going to be a literal picture of God the Son. This is about the man, Jesus, operating in a place of favor that no one else has operated before. To whom are the angels, as he said at any time, Thou art my son, and this day have I begotten thee. Not even his crowning accomplishment. The angels could compare to this man that's going to come. Because he's made him a little lower than the angels. 
But he's going to also make him who this Jesus. He's going to make him the head of all principalities and powers. Of things in heaven and things in the earth. I'm going to tell you if there's a God the Father and a God the Son in heaven. Then they got some problems. Because they're going to bow to this Jesus. Because every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, let's finish it. To the glory of God the Father. What? Not to the glory of God? God the Holy Ghost? Poor Holy Ghost never gets in any of the pictures. Has nothing to do with him being uh, somehow God the Father, God the Son, and some co-equal, co-eternal trinity. It's about two. They're going to acknowledge that no, that Jesus says, no man comes unto the Father but by me. Acts 20, 28. Take heed whom God has made you the overseers of the flock, right? Whom he's purchased with his his own blood. When did God have blood? (laughs) When he robed himself in flesh. When he came as that lowly baby in a manger. And it's not just a Christmas story, folks. He says, look, he says, I understand. I understand. You're in the manger. We got the king over there. He's looking to kill you. You ain't even in a palace. I got you hid away. And I'm going to fulfill prophecy, and you're going to come lowly. I'm going, to t- I'm going to make it to where you have to get back to Bethlehem, and you're going to be fulfilling prophecies. And no one's going to know. The world should stop and cry out in awe, but no one's going to know. But God says, I'm not going to leave this unnoticed. I'm not going to let this go unseen. So he says, Gabriel, I want you to go get the choir. I want you to go get the choir. I want you to go down to that hillside where those shepherds are. And I, 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 got, I just got to allow it to happen once. Won't you sing this praise song? What praise song? We just we, we talk about it at Christmas. That's it. The angels appear. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy. What were the glad tidings of great joy? For unto you is born. For unto you the Son. For unto you the seed of David. For unto you God is legally stepped into the arena as a man to fight this battle. For unto you is born this day a Savior. Which is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. This Jesus being at the right hand of God exalted. Right hand. People make weird stuff at that. But I thought David said he was always at my right hand. Maybe David's God the Father. Or when he says things like this, that Jesus cast out devils by the finger of God. So maybe maybe he's got a big finger. He's going around pow, punching the devil out of people. That's not what it means. It's metaphorical language. Trinitarians admit this. It's language of power and prominence. It's Philippians chapter 2 where uh, the apostle Paul is writing and, and the church is conflicted and they're fighting and they're, and they're all worrying about who's the big shot. And he says, I will show you who the big shot is. You carnal Christians that are fighting for power, fighting for glory, looking to be the hot shot or the hot dog and be the big name up there. I don't care what you want to preach. I don't care what platforms you want. He says, I'll tell you where glory is. Your God came. Oh. And he's, he's so moved by in, in, in his pastoral correction. He picks up an early hymn of the church. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's an early hymn of the church. It has meter in Hebrew. And they used to sing it. It's like preaching along and saying, I went to a meeting one night. And my heart wasn't right. But something got a hold of me. And see, that's what Paul does. Except he says, let this mind be in you was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
But then he goes on and he says, but he humbled himself. Why are you fighting? Why are you bickering? Why are you thinking you're going to be the big dog? (laughs) Take a cue from God, your Savior, who come to be a servant, come to be a humble man, humbled himself. Took the form of a servant. Girded himself with a towel and washed his disciples' feet. And when Peter is saying, no, no, you'll never wash my feet. And he says, if you don't let me serve you this way, (laughs) you'll have no part with me. If you don't let Jesus serve you, if you don't let him wash you, no man comes into the Father but by me. Why wouldn't you want to go down in that name? That name that's above every other name. Because, see, here's the part. The Bible says that he's preaching about this role of Jesus, the man that comes to be the sacrifice, comes to be the atoning work, and no one can operate in this place of power other than this man. And he says, being at the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. That's two. Well, yeah, two roles. It's not three. Jesus, having received of the Father this promise, which you now see shed abroad and hurt. God wanted to put holy inside of you. But his nature is indivisible. God wanted to put his presence inside you. But if he just came as the Father, you would receive judgment for sin. You could never approach on your best day the holiness of God because our righteousness is our filthy. I don't deserve to be behind this pulpit. I don't deserve to be preaching in this. I don't deserve to even pick up this holy book. But God's holiness is only part of him. The other part of him drove him. The other part of it made him say, look, I, I, need, to, I need to step in. Robe myself in flesh, being at the right hand. And God has given him this promise, which you see shed forth and hear. What does that mean? It means the sacrifice of Jesus became the way for God to put holy inside of you. How many of you have ever sinned? You ever thought something wrong, done something wrong, said something wrong? Glad my wife's not here tonight. She'd amen very loudly for me. But we were all destined for hell. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. But the Bible says that God has made this this Jesus both Lord and Christ. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith unto himself, The Lord God said unto my Lord, the man Jesus, Sit at my right hand, operate in this position of power, until I make thy foes thy footstool. By the act of Calvary, you will destroy the work of death, hell, and the grave. Psalm 22. First half of Psalm 22 is a hymn of suffering. The second half of Psalm 22 is a hymn of victory. It's about a suffering servant who comes in the first part. You read it. Oh, I wish we could go through it tonight, but I don't want to keep you here forever. The second half is about a reigning king. And Jesus is saying when he's on the cross, all due respect to our Trinitarian friends, when he says, Eloi, Eloi, let my sabbatini, in Aramaic, if we were Jewish people, I've said this before, please just let me say it again. If we were Jewish people in the first century 
And I wanted you to open your Bible, your Hebrew Bible. We're in synagogue and we're having meeting. And I wanted you to open your Bible to Psalm 22. Brother Kramer, I couldn't say open your Bible to Psalm 22. Because that wasn't added until the English much later. So I would tell you to turn the title of Psalm 22, which is the first line of Psalm 22. And you know what it says? I would tell you this. And we wouldn't speak Greek because that's the heathen language. We'd speak Aramaic. I'd say, open your Bible to Psalm 22. But I wouldn't say Psalm 22. I'd say, open your Bible to Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabbatani. Because on the cross, it had nothing to do. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It had nothing to do with the eternal spirit pulling away from God, as some of our preachers preach. That's some type of dumbed-down Trinitarianism. Hebrews is clear. He offered himself through the eternal spirit. What is it about? Well, it's not about a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. He's pointing to Psalm 22. And what you have to say is, what is he saying? He's saying, pay attention to what I'm doing here. Because through this act, suffering, Isaiah 51, 52, 53, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. God said, I'm going to step in and I'm going to take the blows for you. I'll take the penalties of sin because my holiness has to be justified. My holiness, the requirements of my holiness must be met. So I will step in and I will take the punishment. And anyone that will come to me, anyone that's a thirst, let him come. And on the cross, he says, it is finished. What does that mean? When he came and he died, and I don't know why any Christian that has been understands the cost of sin would want to be even closely associated with something that's sin. Why would you want, if you love him, if we owe him everything, why would you want to even get close to disobeying him? Something that nailed him to the cross. So what's the point of all this passion? We don't preach this. We don't say much about this. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's Philippians 2. Highly exalted to the place of power, the place that no human being has ever been before. Because, Brother Hauk, as much as uh, uh, you love me, and I love you, and as much as you'd say, oh, I'd hate to see Brother Kelman go to hell. i hate to see him go to hell. Thank you. I just, I don't think you would. And you would say, oh, Brother Hauk's a great Christian, and, and, and he would lay down his life for Brother Kilman. Could you do that? Well, even if he was willing, if he, if he was willing to do that, the problem is, I'm glad your wife's not here. She may amen too. Brother Hauk would have to say, I'd have to pay for my own penalties first. But the difference between Christ is that when he walked on the earth, like a sheep dumb, led to the shear, he never pointed to himself. Read the Gospel of Mark. Healings, power, deliverance would take place, and he'd say, of course, they go blab it everywhere, you know. But why? Because he came to make of himself no reputation. He came to be a suffering servant. And as a man walked humbly, 
humbly to the cross like a, like a lamb dumb. They took him and they, they flogged him. They beat him until literally the, his back was a quivering mass of flesh. Took him and jammed that crown of thorns on his head. Our creator. Took him and nailed him to that cross right through the old the nerves. And Have you ever hit your funny bone? It's not too funny. Imagine not hitting it, but someone taking a pair of pliers and gripping it and crushing it. Made a name for the cross because it was so despicable, so horrific that not even the Romans would allow one citizen to die that death. So they had to make up a new word called excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. They held him up on that cross and lifted him up and dropped him into that hole. And as he came down, the, the, the historians will say, hanging on three points of agony, our creator. Who could have called, as the song is the, the songwriter said, ten thousand angels, but for the glory that was set before him in eternity past, his desire for love and relationship, the holiness of God, and all of that satisfied right there for the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And our Savior hangs. As the mediator, there is something between you and God. And it's the sacrifice of the man Jesus. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. That's what he was preaching. No wonder they were pricked in their hearts. Our Messiah came. God came. And, and he said, you, you crucified him. And they were pricked in their hearts and said, men and brethren, what must we do? How can we make this right? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Not the name of God. Not the name of the Spirit. Because the Son is your sacrifice. Would you stand tonight? The unpreached verses of Acts chapter 2. Here's the danger we face as apostolics. We can become so used to things. You're so used to the sacred. So used to these messages that we don't even hear them anymore. That we forget how much salvation costs. And that we, we make it about a debate between oneness and Trinitarians. And we fight it out. And, and it's only a debate. And it's not about the glory of our God coming and stooping to serve, to gird himself with a towel and begin to wash your feet. And Peter, is he, he's just horrified because that's the lowest job. It's, it's the lo job of the lowest servant in the house. They come in in those dusty places and, and they walk in, they have stinky feet. Who wants to, and, and you can imagine them, Sister Marcus was saying, I'm not going to pick up the towel. And God says, I will show you what I came to do. Girds himself. Peter's like, no, no. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you stop him from going to the cross? Don't, don't go there, Jesus. I'm not worthy. 
Wouldn't you stop him on the road to Golgotha? Lord, please turn back. I am not worthy that you would. Can't you hear that in the Gospels? I'm not even worthy that you should come into my house. I know who you are. Please don't go there. Don't do this. It's so horrific. Please don't do this. My love compels me to reach past my holiness to bring you to myself. Lord, we owe you everything. I pray if there's someone here tonight that's never repented of their sins, in the view of the enormity of your sacrifice, if someone's never been baptized in your name, that they would see past this theological debate and see that it's about how you came to fight. That the blood that you shed as a human being is what it gives us access. No man comes into the Father but by you. No one has fellowship with God without the sacrifice of the Son. Oh, my oneness apostolic friends. You should teach this. If you teach it like this to your Baptist friend, they'll understand what you're saying. If you'll share it like this with your Catholic friends, they'll see that it's more than just a theological debate. It's about the glory of how our God came and fought the greatest battle that's ever been fought. And he fought it as a man in the devil's own backyard and triumphed over him having triumphed over principalities and powers, making a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, the cross, where he died for you and for me. Could we give him some thanks? Lord, we owe you everything. We come to give you honor. We come to give you glory. We come to give you thanks. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Help us to never be ashamed to be a oneness apostolic Pentecostals. Help us never to under, never be ashamed, but always understand who we are. We give you honor, we give you glory, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Come on, let me just, this not, may not be for everybody, just let me say this. Just work with me a little bit in the spirit. If you're a good Christian, it's hard to refuse God when you stand at the foot of the cross. It's hard. It's hard to look at this sacrifice and turn your back on what God is trying to do in your life. It's not like he's trying to lord over you. He says, we don't lord over you like the Gentiles do. This is for your good. Don't you trust him? Lordship of Christ. Come to give you life, all things that pertain unto life and to godliness. Oh, my Christian friends. I have to quit. I have to quit. I could go on all night. I love this stuff. Why? Because it's, it's true. It's who we are. If we lose this, we're going to lose everything. If we lose our connection to these types of truth and the passion to preach them and to share them, we'll become denominal and we'll march off into the sunset. And we'll just be another person that's cut off from our source, this book, the source of revelation, and uh, we'll be something else. Love the truth. Is that a good word tonight? Amen. I asked earlier before I got up who would get behind the word.